On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. Strangely and interestingly, one of the great challenges of a life is to learn to be alone peaceably, at home in oneself. The pandemic has forced many of us, at best, to work out the difference between isolation and loneliness or to find ease within the aloneness inside ourselves, which is how Stephen Batchelor defines solitude. He draws on his life from monasticism to marriage, with teachers from Montaigne to the Buddha to Rilke, to remind us why solitude has always been and will always be an element of well-being and even the richness of our relationships with others, and how to turn that into graceful practice. We can learn to actually create a solitude in which we feel at home and grounded. I think, crucially, it has to do with refining our capacity to see where our impulses are coming from, to what extent those impulses are just driven by conditioning and habit and fear, and to what extent we can somehow open up a non-reactive space within us. So solitude, the practice of solitude, is the practice of creating an inward autonomy within ourselves, an inward freedom from the power of these overwhelming thoughts and emotions. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Stephen Batchelor is a teacher, scholar, and writer. He grew up in England and after high school left for India, where he took vows for a time as a Tibetan Buddhist monk. I interviewed him once before about his practice of secular Buddhism and reached out again after he wrote a wonderful new book, The Art of Solitude. This conversation took place just before the pandemic and has only gained in resonance. Stephen Batchelor lives in France with his wife of several decades. I wonder how you would think about um, your earliest memory of or sense of what you now name and reflect on as solitude. I wonder where your mind goes with that or where your body goes. Uh, well, my mind goes actually to my very first memories. And my first memory was flying into Toronto as about a three-year-old and looking out of the plane window. And that's really where the story of Stephen began. And uh, I suppose a conscious concern with my own subjectivity, my own interiority. Uh, it all began there. And it continues until we lose consciousness at the end of our lives and it all stops. Mm -hmm. So for me, solitude is really just another way of talking about what it's like to be the person you are what it's like to be Krista, what it's like to be Stephen, mm. and what matters to Stephen and Krista, uh, and how we struggle with that, and we ponder it, and we reflect it, and, we, and, it, and it evokes certain feelings, emotions in the body. It's very embodied, I feel. It is very embodied. Do you know, when you, when you evoke childhood in that way, and becoming aware of oneself, you know, I almost, when I think about that awareness in childhood, and and I think also, you know, in early childhood, but also kind of hitting adolescence, it could almost, there could be an agony to it, right? Like, <laughs> that, like you're kind of locked in this body and in these circumstances. 
and nobody else understands or sees what you see. That's right. That's mm. right. Of course, in, 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 in many languages, English being somewhat the exception, solitude is, um, is equivalent really to loneliness. Yes. Uh, la solitude in French can for mainly means lo being lonely. Um, in English, we have the great advantage of a word that's relatively value neutral. Uh, we don't think of it as the same as loneliness. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, that it is the sight of loneliness, the sight mm -hmm. also of how we can also be at ease and at leisure with ourselves. Do you know um, Sherry Turkle, who's at MIT, Mm -hmm. who wrote a book, I think called Alone Together. But anyway, you know, she, right. she had this sentence that's very similar to many things you say, that if, you know, if we don't teach our children to be alone, they will only know how to be lonely. And that those are two different things. Um, I, you know, I lived in Germany for a long time, and um, I thought about this a lot. Also, you mentioned this with language, that there's only this word Einsamkeit, Einsamkeit which at this yeah. one and the same time would be used for solitude and loneliness. But, you know, it's not just that that this is the human condition, that we are born alone and that we die alone. But, alone, exactly. but there's so much generativity and creativity. And as you say, ease, which, which we actually have to, we have to learn, um, that becomes possible in knowing how to be alone. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, the, um, they're translating the book into German at the moment, mm -hmm. and they're struggling with the title. Right. Yeah. So they've translated it as... Uh, uh, die Kunst mit sich selbst allein zu sein, the art of being alone, alone with, with oneself. Right. And that captures it actually very, very well. It does. It's the art of being alone with yourself. In other words, just being in your own company yeah. and not only being okay with that, but also, as you suggest, recognizing that this is the source, this place of just settling is the place you find yourself. For example, if you're a poet or a painter, that's where your ideas begin. That's where your imagination, your creativity, all start to, as it were, be, be germinated and then mm -hmm. find form. And I think it's very striking that the artist, the, the person who spends a lot of time alone in a studio, just with their materials, just with their imagination, that is a, a dimension of our culture that does has learned these skills, but of course with a very specific aim of producing art. What I think our society is in enormous need of is a training in aloneness, in being alone with mm -hmm. oneself that goes right back to the beginning of one's education as a human person, particularly in a world that's lost touch with so many uh, traditional spiritual and contemplative ways of doing this. We need a secular awareness of that sort, yes. of, as it were. And you you do use the language of the art of solitude. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that language of of this as an art is also instructive. And so, yeah. So what I so what I'd like to keep doing is just I mean, what you did in this book, which is a series of essays, is kind of walk other people through how you, in particular, have pondered and worked with and lived with this reality of solitude and the possibilities in it, its complexity, right, and its hardness mm. as well as its delight. And, and you've done that by drawing on and being accompanied by all kinds of teachers across time and space, including artists. But it seems to me also, you grew up in the UK, yes. um, not Tibetan Buddhist, but, 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 not <laughs> but came to this tradition when you were very young, I believe. 
That's right. I, I completed high school in England. Okay. Uh, and I didn't do at all well. I, th- I think I must have had a deep yearning for some kind of uh, introspective awareness. I, I always remember as a child at school, uh, sitting in a classroom, and we were studying whatever you study, English literature or mathematics or physics or whatever. And I used to sit at my desk and, uh, and just puzzle to myself, why don't they talk about what actually it's like to be a person from the inside? Why do they not talk about the things we are agonized about in the playground after the class? Yeah. Um, why is there this kind of, I felt it was a kind of an embarrassment uh, for them, of, uh, you were embarrassed for, for them. them. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, right. Somehow there was a, a, a taboo part of our lives mm-hmm. that for all of us was the one that mattered most, how I feel. And yet that was, in a sense, off limits. Education didn't go there. Yeah. And it was only when I got to India and met Tibetan lamas that they were able to talk about these things without any embarrassment whatsoever, as though it were just a natural part of the human landscape, right. and they which, offered which all is, kinds right. of, which it of is, fact, of course yes, it is, yes. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, they offered not only you know insight into this fact, but also more importantly, uh, disciplines and trainings, meditations, uh, exercises that actually allowed you to be comfortable and actually to thrive in this inwardness, and it is an art, as the title of the book right. suggests. I think the art element is very very crucial to this. So let's talk through some of the thinkers who have inspired and been your teachers in this project. And mm-hmm. um, Montaigne is a prime example. Michel de Montaigne, the mid-16th century um, French uh, aristocrat philosopher. You wrote of him, for him, there was nothing more joyful, lively, and playful, I would almost say more sexy than philosophy. <laughs> but, but, but really, he was about... He just indulged in the project he called Myself with a capital M. (laughs) No, that's right. That's right. I think this whole exploration begins for me as a writer, having studied uh, Buddhist philosophy and having recognized that, uh, particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, they make a very clear distinction between the project of wisdom, which is understood to be something one does really for one oneself in a way, as opposed to the practice of compassion, which is very much an an outward expression of that wisdom. And their definition of a Buddha or an awake being is one in whom these two dimensions have have been realized and are no longer, in a sense, in opposition to each other, but have become integrated in a figure of wholeness, Um, in which inwardness and outwardness are just part and parcel of your experience of being fully human. Yeah, there's a paradox at the heart of this solitude, the the closer you move into it, right? Mm -hmm. That, I mean, here's one way you wrote about it. Solitude is not to be found in a forest. It's not to be found in a deep state of formless meditation. It's to be found by learning to dwell in your body, in your senses, but really, it also, while on the surface, it, it, it's something that takes us away from others or meets the fact that we are mm-hmm. inherently away from others, it takes us back outward as well, eventually, right? It, exactly. That is the paradox of solitude. And one of the deep paradoxes of our humanity is that we're, in each moment, 
when I'm speaking to you now, for example, um, there's a part of that in which I'm aware of my own inner feelings and maybe anxieties. And there's another part of it which is only possible because I'm engaged in a conversation with another person. Mm -hmm. And you can never step out of all of that. Even the, the hermit living in the middle of nowhere is still acutely aware that he or she is a social being. They, the very language that forms in our solitary mind is not ours. It's the language of our community, of our, of our culture. The, the terms within which we think are those of our religion, our philosophy. Uh, in other words, you cannot escape yourself. It's impossible. You cannot step away from your embeddedness in life. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Buddhist teacher and scholar Stephen Batchelor. Reading his book on the art of solitude brought to mind for me the poet Rilke's reflections on the importance of solitude, even and precisely, for relationships. In his letters to a young poet, Rilke wrote that a good marriage is one in which each partner appoints the other to be the guardian of their solitude, and thus they show each other the greatest possible trust. I'm thinking about Rilke writing to his young poet about not rushing into relationship because you know, that the deep relationship will be two solitudes saluting each other, right? Which many of us learn the hard way as we go through life with yes. broken relationships, that we actually needed to be at home in ourselves before we could actually be at home with another, uh, which I guess exactly. is another paradox here at the at the heart of this conversation we're having. You know, it, it is certainly another paradox, and I think a, a very important one. And um, I worry about how, with social media and so forth, people are never are having less and less and less time to really with value. With themselves. With themselves. Yeah. And um, I think that is true. I, my, my own training as a monk in contemplative traditions has not made me become sort of isolated and introspective and sort of wary of other people, but very much the opposite. I find that having that groundedness, uh, that uh, sort of a basic... Uh, sense of, of being okay, uh, mm-hmm. of, of being mm-hmm. at home mm-hmm. with myself, is the foundation from which I can then, as it were, really communicate more authentically and more directly with others. I'm not concerned about what they think about me or what they are going to say or what they want, but I have a resource within myself that is my own, you know, deeply earned truth, if you like, or or, or integrity. And that's where I live not just for me, but it's only meaningful in the sense that that can become the foundation for how I interact and relate to those who are close to me, of course, but also in my work situations. And I think also much more broadly than that through literature, through art, in which we seek to somehow communicate these values. I seek somehow Mm -hmm. to communicate what I've learned uh, and make it somehow transparent and available and uh, important for other people. I think that, that was such, a, such an excellent description of, of the very practical benefits of walking with solitude rather than resisting it. Um, yes. I wanted to actually just open up your book and 
And read. So Montaigne is one of your teachers, companions in this uh, solitude project. Would that be would that be a fair way to yes, say that? Yes. Oh, oh, Montaigne is is one of my guiding lights. One of your guiding lights. So you know, oh, here's yes. some of the things that he wrote. Um, you know, hundreds of you, four hundred years ago, um, thinking about these very things. Uh, I've just just marked a few of them. Um, that is why it is not enough to remove oneself from people not enough to go somewhere else. We have to remove ourselves from the habits of the populace that are within us. (laughs) We have to isolate our own self and return it to our possession. Um, Here's something else. The greatest thing in the world is to know how to be yourself. Here's another one. He said, we have a soul that can turn in on itself. It can keep itself company. It has the means to attack and defend, to give and receive don't worry that solitude will find you hunched up in boredom. <laughs> and I do actually think that for 21st century people, that would be a fear if you say, be more solitary. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. No, it is. It's scary for people. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I lead meditation retreats and we ask people to, to, to enter silence, for some people that is utterly terrifying. Uh, the fact that you can't communicate with someone, um, that you somehow have to just be within yourself, um, means you somehow are no longer allowed to sort of leech out into the world. Montaigne uses this expression. He says that um, uh, our, our lives are always leaking away. We're like a barrel that's got lots of leaks in it. And uh, we're constantly sort of spilling out into the social and the other world. And again, if you think of of social media, that's what it's like. And um, the practice of solitude, as Montaigne puts it so very well in the passage you read, is uh, is to somehow bring all that back into ourselves, to not let our emotions and our thoughts just sort of dissipate out into the world, but to gain some way in which we harness those energies, we return them to our own inner awareness, inner consciousness, and we become, therefore, much more careful and much more caring as to how we do express Mm. ourselves. Solitude actually establishes the foundation for, rather than just saying the first thing that comes into your head and letting it blather out into the world, we actually take a more reasoned and reflective, a calmer, a slower way of saying and acting in ways that hopefully others will will find a value. And um, so once again, solitude, interaction, in the end, turn out to be two parts of the same experience. Yeah, here's that, the passage you just noted from Montaigne and where he continues, which I will say, you know, I I read this um, following on what you just said, and I it reads so differently in this time where we have so many distractions, right? So he said, um, recover your mind and your will, which are busying themselves elsewhere. You are draining away and scattering yourself. Concentrate yourself. Hold yourself back. Yeah. You are being betrayed, dissipated, robbed. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And uh, what I found particularly striking is that Montaigne had no knowledge whatsoever of Buddhism. He doesn't use the words meditation at all. But when I read Montaigne through my Buddhist spectacles, um, I'm astonished that how much he somehow stumbled across through his own inquiries and through his own reading of Greek philosophy uh, that brings us to uh, insights that are completely in accord 
with what you'll find in a book on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that striking. I yes. find that what that points to is there's some commonality in humid inwardness, whether you're a Buddhist or you're a Roman Catholic like Montaigne, that if you pay attention to your inwardness, you'll start coming up with very similar insights. You'll even start using a similar kind of language. And that's one of the things that really struck me. Hmm. And, you know, I think I want to just um, spend a little bit of time on a paradox that's kind of running through all of this, um, which is at one and the same time we're speaking of becoming at home in oneself with one's interiority, with one's interior world, with, you know, an inner ease. And the reality that, that you also write about so well and that we actually all know whether we've thought about it in this context or not is that the world inside us is a very complex, often troubled place, which is why um, for you, that you know, we've spoken in the beginning about how to be alone, to be at home in ourselves is something that I think human beings, we are all drawn to and yet terrified of. And that's why when we do have teachers and tools, um, I mean, that, that we need that, that, you know, you used the word training early on. Yes. No, that's, that to me, I think, is also absolutely central to my exploration of solitude, is my having been introduced to tools, contemplative tools, uh, that we can actually use uh, to, to practice solitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a danger, I think, of thinking of solitude uh, as some kind of place, some kind of space uh, within us. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel that when you start to think of it as a practice, as, as a training, then that practice, and that might be doing mindfulness meditation 20 minutes a day or whatever it is, is that we actually start sculpting, I would say, refining, shaping the contours of our inwardness, the contours of our interiority. Uh, And that's a lot of work because, as Montaigne and the Buddha both pointed out, there's all of these uh, fantasies and and paranoid thoughts and uh, deep emotions and fears that are constantly crowding out, they're taking over. It's very difficult to be inwardly still. Anyone who's tried meditation thinks, oh, that sounds really nice. Yeah, I'll go and sit quietly, close my eyes and watch my breath. And the next, you know, two nanoseconds later, you've been (laughs) overtaken. Yeah, you've got been overtaken. (laughs) Any kind of nonsense that's running through your mind. So you realize, and I realized this at at a young age, 18, 19 years old, that I had no mastery or control over my inner processes whatsoever. And yet I had this egotistic conceit that I was the guy in charge. And you, so if we're going to work with that, as Montaigne recognized, this was Montaigne's great discovery. He goes into his lovely little tower to spend his time alone in solitude and all hell breaks loose. He said, my mm-hmm. mind was like sort of galloping horses or something like that, over right. which I had no control. It threw him into a depression. And the way he got out of that depression was by carefully analyzing what was actually going on in his thoughts and feelings and emotions. Solitude is something you refine and develop and create. And uh, again, I think crucially, uh, it has to do with refining our ethical intelligence. Mm. It has to do with refining our capacity to see where our impulses are coming from, uh, to what extent those impulses are just driven by conditioning and habit and fear, and to what extent we can somehow open up a non-reactive space within us from which we can respond to the world 
respond to our own needs too, but in a way that's not driven by uh, familiar habit patterns, which are often rooted in attachment and fear and other things. So solitude, the practice of solitude, is the practice of, of, of creating an inward autonomy mm. within ourselves, an inward freedom from the power of these overwhelming thoughts and emotions. I'm, I'm really... Um... I'm really drawn to the to the language you used of this is ethical intelligence, this inner work, and not not merely emotional intelligence, but that in fact, to the extent that we cultivate what I think is more commonly what would more commonly in this culture be described as emotional intelligence, that that is yes. that becomes ethical intelligence, applied ethical intelligence. Absolutely, our own interiority is a field of ethical behavior. In other words. When we practice mindfulness, we feel that we recognize that we're confronted with a choice, a choice to go along with the fantasy that's about to burst out or not. That's an ethical choice. Mm. I'm actually saying it's better to not get caught up in that story. It's better, I'm preferring, to choose to be still and to let that go. That, I think, is where the point where ethics truly begins. And we don't have really a language for an inner ethic. And solitude, I think, provides us with a frame in which we can start talking about that. After a short break, more with Stephen Batchelor. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the difference between loneliness and finding ease in aloneness. How to practice a life-giving solitude. Stephen Batchelor is a Buddhist teacher and scholar and the author of the lyrical book, The Art of Solitude. You know, one thing that's striking me, I mean, you, you are British, I'm American, we're both white Western people of the... I don't know, Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment West. Um, (laughs) um, I feel that what you're describing is something that so many people are ready to make, although it's hard work, so we have to talk about what the work is, right? Um, But that we're actually working our way back to something that is natural and innate, that that we kind of skewed. And I don't know, have you thought about this question of the West, Yes, I have. And um, one of the things that uh, uh, I find striking about Montaigne is that he's drawing his philosophy, and in many ways his whole language of of solitude, the language of the essays, is deeply influenced particularly by the early Greek philosophy uh, of uh, skepticism. 
uh, or the figure of Socrates, but mm -hmm. particularly the skeptics. And he's tapping into a current of thinking and behaving that would have been very, very similar to the world of the Buddha and other sages and teachers of India of that period. And so what I feel um, I've been led to is a, a falling away of the notion of a distinction between the West and the East. Uh, we find the Buddha, who's not a Westerner remotely, he's talking of citta viveka and kaya viveka, which means inner solitude as opposed to outer solitude. Mm. Uh, we find the Buddha well, what is What is outer solitude? What is that? Well, outer solitude is uh, when you, you know, you go off to the top of the mountain and you sit in a cave and basically your mind is a complete chaotic mess, but you are physically... Um, solitude you know, in body only. Solitude in body <laughs> okay. only, exactly. Right. And that's, yeah. that's okay. of course, very, that's dead easy. Anyone can do that. Now, you are no longer a monk. Is, is that correct? And you, that's correct. You married. Yes, yeah. You married. And, and, and I guess what I want to get at is, is how the move from this exploration began in a monastic context. Um, yeah. And now for a number of years, you have lived it in the context of being a married man, um, living more fully in society. So how has that shaped, reshaped, informed this, your solitude project? Well, um, I was a monk for 10 years, from the age of 20 to 30, basically. And uh, then I disrobed and I married. But I married a former nun. Oh, okay. And I found that to be not at all um, somehow in opposition to my deepest values and practices and so on, but actually has provided a very rich environment to explore solitude um, and meditation in a completely non-monastic environment. I think a monastic environment today is largely of value because it affords us a kind of education and training in interiority. So, again, it goes back to this question of education. If we were to become a society in which we would educate our children uh, from a young age to, to become conscious of their interiority, their solitude, their aloneness, and to give them tools and practices... And nowadays, in some schools, they are introducing it, mindfulness it, it and so on. It is starting, yeah. It's beginning to happen. Yeah. Then I think, you know, the need to have separate communities apart from society where these things are taught may become less and less uh, needed. And um, so I would like to think of, of a monastic training as becoming, let's say, an alternative to doing a degree course at a university. Mm. Uh, for some people, this would be the, these would be the skills they would wish to train in. Um, they could then become meditation teachers. In they could, ethical uh, intelligence. In ethical masters intelligence. Masters of ethical intelligence. Master, yeah, masters <laughs> in ethical intelligence. Yes. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mentioned Rilke's two solitudes saluting. Um, how, I mean, I just wonder very practically in the context of marriage, and as you said, you're married with, you're married to somebody who has also cultivated um, solitude, interior life, um, inwardness. Um, how do you think about the compatibility or like what, what is, what is the synergy between a developed solitude and, um, and a functioning marriage? Well, I think it helps a lot, frankly. I think uh, not only in my marriage, but also in many of my relationships with, with friends and others, that uh, this kind of training 
uh, does, I feel, allow us to respond more to the other person rather than just react. Mm. Uh, that, yeah. I think, is a crucial distinction. Solitude and cultivating solitude is basically learning how to be less reactive. And that's where emotional intelligence comes in. Emotional intelligence is an intelligence that seeks to respond to the situation from a non-reactive space. And that non-reactive space is solitude slash nirvana. Okay. <laughs> nirvana is not... Maybe I should yeah. little clarify that. Nirvana is not some Buddhist heaven somewhere, some place you go to after you die, or some deep mystical experience you might, if you're lucky, land in one day. But Nirvana, as the Buddha defined it, is simply the absence of greed, absence of dislike, and absence of egoism. In other words, it is described as a kind... It's, it's, it's a solitude in which you're not being crowded out by your attachments and your fears and your egoistic confusions. That's what you're solitary from. You see, in, in Tibetan and, 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 and some of these Asian languages, you can, you can use solitude as a verb. You can say, ah. I'm, solitary of, I'm solitary of anger, which means ah. I'm, I'm empty of anger. If you look it up, the word solitude, and look it up in a Tibetan dictionary, it gives us, as a synonym, uh, emptiness. You know, that's really interesting, too, because to me, the language of to be solitary of, as opposed to how the how the word emptiness strikes me in English, is mm -hmm. that to be solitary, it has more agency, this solitariness, exactly. right? And uh, it's not a nothingness. It's, no, not it at has all. agency and it has sovereignty. That's right, exactly. And the, see, when I first started studying Buddhism, when I was a young man, the point that my teachers made again and again and again and again was when we talk about emptiness, we don't just mean a sort of a void. Emptiness is only meaningful as an emptiness of something. It's a relative term. It's not an absolute term. You're empty of attachment, let's okay. say, or empty of a particular opinion. And so the perhaps a better way to render that in English would be to talk of this as a process of emptying, to think of it as a verb. In other words, we empty our minds of our greed and our hatred and our attachment. We don't empty our minds of generosity and love and wisdom. Right. Uh, you have to differentiate in solitude what it is that you're letting go of and what it is you're allowing the space for. Right. The problem with, with anger and hatred and fear and so on is that not that they are uncomfortable and pleasant and often cause a lot of grief. The other problem is they block us from doing anything else. They literally crowd our minds to such a point that we can't really even conceive in that moment of an alternative response. Right. I was thinking about how I was just having this conversation with somebody about forgiveness, which, um, which sounds like something you've done for someone else, but in fact mm -hmm. is it's something you do for yourself uh, to not be obsessed Right, it's yeah. a, it's a way of emptying yourself of reactions and grievance that are only doing you harm. I'd, I'd never thought of it like that, but that's absolutely right. Mm. If you forgive, you're actually letting go of something. Mm -hmm. You're letting go of a, a grudge or or, or a resentment, mm -hmm. and in releasing that, you are freeing yourself to think to and be, feel and yeah. act and live differently. Right, and that's the case with solitude. You empty yourself of these things that are getting in your way. 
And that gives you the foundation for living differently. In other words, making different right. choices, leading an ethical life uh, the, from a different uh, perspective deep down within yourself. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today exploring the art and practice of aloneness with Buddhist teacher and writer Stephen Batchelor. So somewhere you said that this art of solitude is um, it's an embodied inquiry. And I think like as we've walked through this, what you're describing is really the embodied inquiry of a lifetime. Right, you never get perfect yes. at this. Yes, you, you never, you'll never get this totally right. No, but it, it would keep developing and evolving, uh, hopefully getting richer. Yeah, which is not to say, you know, one thing I really enjoyed when I interviewed you years ago um, is your real reverence for. I mean, I wrote some of these: the massiveness of the questions, mm-hmm. um, the mystery of existence, and of of what is inside us and of the world that only gets more mysterious the more closely you attend to it, the how we and all of this is really so deeply surprising and odd and that there's something so redemptive about just coming to expect that mm-hmm. rather than resisting it or being surprised or shocked by it. Um, and I feel like this practice of solitude is kind of this elemental way. It's like a creating an elemental foundation in yourself to live that way. It, I couldn't have put it better. That that is an, creating an elemental foundation within yourself to live in a way where you're opening the capacity to respond wisely or more wisely, let's say, mm-hmm. more lovingly, more caringly to the situation at hand. But again, as an ethical a choice you're making, you're also, it also has an element of risk. You cannot know in advance what is the right thing, you right. Know, that your actions or your words will have the effect you wish. You're basically throwing something that you, you are called upon to say or to do. And hopefully that will make an improvement in the world, but it may not. You might get it wrong. And that then will yeah. feed back into your reflective life as to try to understand better the consequences of what you said or did. But and in that sense, it's a constant ref- ongoing ethical inquiry and, and refinement of a sensibility that will always be with us because perfection in human life, I think, is a pipe dream. Right. That life is constantly <laughs> yeah. throwing us uh, situations that we could not conceivably have foreseen. Our body gets sick, breaks down, all of these things. And at each moment... In our existence, we're constantly aware that we're faced with choices. Mm-hmm. It's always a challenge. It's always, uh, our lives are always a work in progress. Yeah. We are unfinished projects and we'll still be an unfinished project when we die. Yes. Uh, but that is what gives this whole way of living uh, its, its, its urgency, its dynamism, and also I think its, its deep uh, joy, yeah. its deep sense of, of, uh, of flourishing as a person. Mm, yeah, it's nothing static about this. I think somewhere you mentioned, there's a couple of people you mentioned that Nelson Mandela 
uh, in his enforced solitude of prison, um, the, how that formed him, which I hadn't heard before, his, his sense of the power of words, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's a statement he made in a speech he gave somewhere. Uh, it's not in one of his books. I think it's a very beautiful passage because it shows that this solitude, which clearly wasn't chosen in his case, it was the last thing he wanted. It was enforced. And it was totally enforced. 27 years of his life. Right. His most active adult life in solitude. And yet he's the kind of person who, rather than just becoming lonely and depressed, which I suspect would be a very reasonable way of reacting to that uh, incarceration, um, he saw it as an opportunity. And what he discovers uh, in the silence and the solitude uh, is the power of words and how powerful words are. Because this is what he's been cut off from. Yes. The capacity to be able to speak. And rather than just feel frustrated and limited, he reflects back on what, um, how valuable words are in being able to address people's real needs and concerns. And so he seems to have transformed that imprisonment, at least at one level, into a deeper resource within himself. And I think, you know, when he dis- he is released from jail and you hear him speak, there's a kind of a, there's a gravity and a, mm. and a maturity mm. and a depth. And it doesn't really matter almost what he says. There's something in his tone of voice, something in his whole being that has been nurtured and enriched, it appears from this long period of enforced solitude and reflection. This is uh, Mandela. He says, It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die. Live and die. It's it's just such a an incredible demonstration of of what you've we've kind of been walking with and through this mm-hmm. whole conversation about in fact the seamlessness of what is what appears to be interior and what is exterior. Yes, yes. yes. And how much more robust that relationship and how much more ethical and meaningful that relationship can become with a cultivated interiority, even though in his case it was uh, forced on him. Um, I did want to come back to something you, um, come back to this, uh, the notion that you described uh, from Buddhism about wisdom being something one does for oneself and compassion something one does for others. Um, Because I actually did want to ask you uh, how you understand the quality of wisdom. You know, what is wisdom as one <laughs> touches it, approaches yeah. it, perhaps, in the course of a life? Um, well, first of all, the, the framework within which that distinction is made, the framework is that of, of the meaning of life. And the, uh, in, in some early Buddhist definitions of awakening or enlightenment, uh, it's de- awakening is described, or a Buddha is described, as one who has achieved meaning for themselves and meaning for others, mm. literally. That's what the text says. Acquiring meaning for oneself is acquired through wisdom, discernment, reflection. 
Whereas acquiring meaning for others is through how you embody that wisdom, that reflection yeah. in speech, in acts, in maybe collaborative endeavors or whatever it might be. And the understanding also that for the awake person, there is actually no, the, the two have been totally and utterly integrated. You have become, as it were, wholly human, completely mm. human. Mm. That's the goal. It's an ideal, right. obviously. But that's what you, you aim at. Mm -hmm. um, so wisdom, and again, it may not be the best English word to translate the, the original uh, Tibetan Sanskrit, which implies something more like uh, reflection, discernment, um, inquiry. Uh, that's, in a way, your inner work. Uh, and the result of it is what we might call wisdom. And wisdom is really, really the result of reflective inquiry. It's the result of dwelling upon your life, its meaning. It's the result of your, uh, your abilities to have somehow achieved certain goals in your life, certain projects, and that all of that makes you wiser. And I think we also have to recognize that it, wisdom is a kind of an innate quality too, that we often meet people who have gift. no great education or mm -hmm. they haven't studied Buddhism or anything, and yet they've got this natural intelligence, this wisdom. Yes. Uh, that's quite remarkable, in fact, quite humbling. You know, I spend my adult life trying to become more wise and then I meet someone who has really had no, none of that background at all but seems a lot wiser than me. <laughs> so, um, so that's I hear another you. side of it too. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, is, this is kind of an absurd question. Um, so I just wonder how would you start thinking about the question, the, the vast question... Uh, of what it what it means to be human, um, how that is present for you, and perhaps evolving right now, this week, today, in your this life. This week. <laughs> well, I think there are two. There's two answers to that. One is to think of the project of becoming human as a work in progress, as an unfinished project that has in in one's inner life its root in an ongoing perplexity and puzzlement and confusion, what Montaigne calls ignorance, which of course in a Buddhist perspective would seem very strange. But for Montaigne, he calls, he says, my master form is ignorance. In other words, a deep not knowing. Mm. And it's that deep not knowing. Uh, in other words, emptying oneself of opinions and views and beliefs and so on. The more that one does that, the more you somehow come to rest in this primal humility of the fact that this world is boundlessly mysterious and unknowable. And yet at the same time, that is the fount, the origin of how you then respond to this mystery of life in its specificity, right. in the work I'll have to do next weekend to teach a meditation retreat. I don't prepare a great deal for it. I trust those intuitions, but I also recognize that they are only meaningful to me if they can help me respond to the people in the room, can respond to uh, my public who read my books in such a way that I can actually give a, a concrete form and shape and pattern to something that another part of me recognizes to be deeply unpin-downable, ineffable. And it's the paradox, again, between the ineffable and the effable, right. uh, the mysterious and the concrete, uh, that is the kind of driving tension for how I seek to live my life 
uh, from moment to moment. Stephen Batchelor is a co-founder and faculty member of Bodhi College, and he and his colleagues continue to offer online seminars developed during the pandemic called Thinking Out Loud. In an essay called Solitude and COVID-19, he points out that Montaigne, too, spent six months in quarantine, perilously fleeing the plague. He writes... Montaigne's practice of solitude did not lead him to ignore the plague and rest in a state of aloof indifference. At the heart of solitude lies a paradox. Look long and hard enough at yourself in isolation, and suddenly you will see the rest of humanity staring back. Stephen Batchelor's many books include Buddhism Without Beliefs, The Faith to Doubt, and most recently, The Art of Solitude. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gotuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashen, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, and Matt Martinez. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.